I'm Dan Jurgen, Vice Chairman of IHS Market, and I'm very pleased to welcome you today to a Sierra Week conversation presented by IHS Market with Francesco Storace, who is the CEO of Enel, which is one of the world's largest electric power companies and is certainly a super major uh, in terms of renewable energy and renewable power. Francesco, welcome to Sierra Week Conversations. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Dan. Uh, I look forward to this conversation, really. It's always interesting. Good. Well, thank you. I think we have to start with, uh, of course, the energy transition. And the question is, uh, you know, we're talking about a $93 trillion world economy making an energy transition. Uh, just a big basic question. How does it look to you today? It looks like... Um, a very large uh, tide. It's, it's a tidal move. So it's not a wave, it's a big tidal movement moving uh, with a very strong momentum at this point. Uh, I think that momentum is likely to be there for the next 10 years at least, the way we see it. It's driven by technology most, most uh, deeply. It's not just policy or climate concerns. These are there, but the real momentum is technology driven and the, the technology drivers in my opinion are two. One is digital, which is common to many other transitions. And the other one maybe less uh, obvious is the incredible and continuous improvements that material science is throwing at things. So things are made of materials and materials get better and better. And this explains deep down the transition in the power segment in the in the energy field at this point in time by 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 material science you mean in the in the materials that go into wind turbines and yeah all kinds of things i mean materials with which we make things so they are lighter more resistant less expensive easier to recycle more precise to machine so all that stuff gets into machinery that is more performance. Uh, it's doing things that before were any, were, and combined with digital, you see the performance of technologies that existed since many years, all of a sudden blossoming. I mean, That's going to continue for a long time. I, I was, actually, it's a very interesting point because most people don't really see the role of material science in it. Don't understand how, how it's changed. Uh, you, uh, before you took over as CEO of Enel, you were head, head of Enel Green Power. Uh, you've been in this for longer than most. Uh, how has your own thinking evolved over, uh, over time? You know, I am a nuclear engineer, so that tells you <laughs> where I came from. It's evolved. <laughs> it's evolved a lot. So I went through the whole, during my life, my professional life, of course, I have seen different waves of um, energy transformation or uh, this is a, this is an ever-changing uh, scope scape so i think uh, the only probably the only big difference today is that the speed at which this transition this transition is happening is so faster and 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 so perceivable that people really that not only you know people that work in the sector, but everybody is exposed to the impact of this transition uh, in in its in its lifetime or in a few years. So 
you go look back five years and you see, gosh, I mean, things changed a lot in five years. 20 years ago, there was another transition, the transition from coal to gas, you know, it was, it was happening in the power sector, but it took 15 years to materialize deeply. So the, the, the time compression is such that, um, that this is today, uh, if you wanted the distinguishing factor of this last transition uh, moment, but it's been there all the time. And, and I have observed this transition with detachment. I, I, I don't have a dogmatic view of I like this, I don't like that. I mean, it's just interesting and that's it. Well, was there a time, you know, uh, was there a time as a nuclear engineer when suddenly your yeah. mind began to switch? Yeah, it was very- Something that caused early. you to switch from nuclear to thinking renewable. I tell you, I was just a, gi a junior engineer and I, I was working in, in uh, uh, I was modeling re uh, incidents. I was an in modeling disasters. <laughs> <laughs> in nuclear reactors, which was pretty fun. I mean, it was actually fantastic. But I was kind of scared then, and that in my life, if I was going to be lucky, I would probably see a couple of plants built because it was so slow and so regulated and so say bureaucratic. And, and I was younger and a lot more, I wanted to see things happening. So I decided to drop out of the industry way before Chernobyl, a lot earlier. Just because I was bored, I was kind of eager to see things built. So I went into power generation, the thermal power generation, and, and I was in the gas transition at that time. You know, this right. is when the gas thing came up and combined cycles, that stuff. So I, I switched because of, say, an anxiety of <clears throat> seeing things <clears throat> being built. I was, I think I had the right intuition at that time. Right. So when, so when would you say you really started to focus on renewables as a, as a real alternative? I think at the beginning of, say, the, the first decade of 2000, between 2005, 2006, that's when I, I started to see this kind of an interesting, it's no more a game. It can become another of these transients that, that make a difference. Uh, I thought that these two forces, uh, but mostly material science digital was not there yet and did the same way, would really push these technologies. And that was, if you want, the only original thinking you can attribute to me. Right. I, I, really, I really thought of that. <laughs> uh, so would you say this has now gone faster than you would expect it? Yeah, it did. It went faster than I expected. By right. far, I mean, and I, and I was much more optimistic than most uh, so-called experts at that time. But even then, uh, reality was faster. Yeah, you, you. I mean, certainly, if you go back a few years, you certainly seem more optimistic uh, than most everybody else in terms of what you saw coming down the road. But still, I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, but in terms of technologies, I noticed the other day that you made a comment in which you said, focus on the technologies we have today, not on science fiction movies. And I wondered what, 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 what you meant about that. I mean that there is a fascination in this industry, which is populated by engineers. And, and we engineers like 
science fiction and like the progress of technology in itself to the point that, you know, this is something in human beings, things we like, we think will happen faster and better than, than actually really happens. So there is a, a tendency in the sector to believe that because something is new, it will have success. But we forget that many promising technologies died on the way. Even renewable, I mean, remember thermal solar technology, the CSP. Yes. I mean, this was a dead end, but at that time, there was a lot of people saying, you know, this is gonna, this is the future. So there is, there is a death rate in technology that I, I know this sounds bad and, and I don't like the word, but there is kind of a failure in technologies that we need to factor in our projections of the future. And, and the rule of thumb, in my opinion, is that if you have a technology at which you have been trying and trying in order to, to really make a difference, and in three or five years, this doesn't really move the needle, you better drop it. Don't, don't, try, don't try and try because it's not really, uh, it's not really worth, it, it's better move something else. Um, so I think, you know, trying to revive dead horses doesn't make them run, they're dead. Right. Well, where do you, obviously now, the next frontier seems to be very much in terms of uh, hydrogen. Uh, mm -hmm. What's your thinking? What's Anel's thinking on hydrogen? I think hydrogen's been around for a while. You, you remember uh, Mr. Rifkin's book, in, again, sure. back, back in the 90s, all right? Yeah. Um, so, why this should be now not anymore, not a fad as it was at that time. And the only new thing, the only new thing there is that renewables are cheap, which was not the case back then. And because renewables are cheap, then producing hydrogen by hydrolysis can become theoretically competitive with the existing hydrogen production if the industry of hydrolyzers becomes an industry and not just a bespoke luxury niche which can happen, it happened in the past, you know, solar panels, we only use them in, in satellites, they costed the fortune, but no one cared, but now they're cheap. So, so it can happen provided people really focus on becoming an industry. And this is something that the world has demonstrated over the years, it can happen. So I think if, if the hydrolyzers become cheaper and more efficient, coupled with cheap renewable energy, then hydrogen produced by hydrolysis can become competitive. And that is a game changer because that kills the carbon footprint of 70 million of tons of hydrogen that is today or the world consumption associated to about 860 million tons of CO2 associated with that production. So I think that's the change, the major change. Then of course you can say you can use hydrogen for storage, you can use hydrogen for yes, but let's not forget you need 50 kilowatt hour of electricity to produce one kilogram of hydrogen. Right. And 50 kilowatt hours in a car drives you to 150 kilometers or 180 miles. It's a lot of energy, one kilo. So it's a very precious substance. It can be used when the molecule of hydrogen is needed. But if you use it to generate energy with that, you waste the energy right. that you used before. So 
it has to be handled with some with some smart mind, not just heat with hydrogen is crazy. Right. So the kind of at this point, uh, with all the excitement about hydrogen, you would say, you know, yeah. it's a lot of excitement, but it's not. Uh, there's a lot of work to do. As an electricity provider, it's great. It's great. You know, it's, it, it boosts demand of electricity in many folds. So it's a fantastic thing. But again, you have to say that can the world really become so crazy that, you know, you waste energy, electricity, and then use hydrogen to heat your home. Just heat your home with the electricity. It's faster right. and cheaper. So, right. but, but, but again, when I say science fiction, I mean also scenarios that you read on newspapers that you know you wonder you know why do they write this stuff it makes no sense <laughs> well, somebody has to write science fiction yeah 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 so uh Enel has come out with its own 10-year business strategy uh i think for the first time which among other things has an 80 percent reduction in direct co2 by 2030 uh what um what what are the main highlights and planned investments that you're looking to undertake? We basically, you know, we have, of course, we have a big scope one CO2 right. <laughs> to be dealing with, you know. So we're, the first thing is phase out thermal generation every time you can, when it, whenever it's possible safely. I mean, you cannot just turn the lights off because people need to be having electricity. So the program is ongoing. We have, a program of investing in renewable generation, roughly 120 billions over the next decade, um, adding something reaching uh, 145,000 megawatts of renewable generation capacity, starting from about 50,000. So we are large already with 50,000, but it, this will treble in the next 10 years, actually eight years. So. That entails an, an investment of roughly 10 billions a year. It's not exactly like that because it's a ramping up exercise, but that, that's a big effort. Um, on, but that can only happen if we also invest in networks because renewable generation is fantastic, but requires a lot of connectivity and a big change in the network systems. So there is a, another huge investment in networks which is today, you know, distribution networks, we have a, one of the largest, if not probably the largest privately owned system worldwide, more than 70 million meters connected to our networks. It's a big system. Um, and that, uh, so the, the two investments are networks and, and, uh, and renewables. That's just for scope one. Uh, then you, we have a scope three, scope two is easy, it's just, our internal carbon footprint is really small. So that's, but scope three is huge because all our vendors, all our suppliers, they also, and customers to whom we still sell gas, they have a carbon footprint because of the work we give them. So that is now bigger than scope one already. So this year, which is, was a surprise for us, this year is the year in which our scope one emissions are lower than the scope three. Right. So the, the, the value chain that we auction, that we work with, and that, that is hard work. You need to work with thousands yeah. of suppliers, put down metrics, let them understand. 
show them that there is an appreciation and some advantage if they cut CO2 down. So it comes with some kind of clever uh, strategy, purchasing strategy and contracting strategies. It's a huge exercise, not technical investments, but uh, maybe if you want more complex uh, work with the whole in the value chain that uh, the good thing is that they, they understand they have to do it because they also have commitments right. on, on their front. So it, it, it's, it, it's coming, but it's huge. It's, it is, I think this will take us not really money, but it will take us time and effort. Right. What, what share of your generation now is still thermal? Natural gas. In terms of um, uh, megawatts, it's 45% thermal and 55 renewables. And in terms of generation, more or less the same. That right. means that the uh, normal capacity factors we used to have in thermal generating plants are going down because of penetration of renewables, making them, right. uh, displacing them in the merit order gradually. So. We, are, we have crossed this 50-50 threshold two years ago. Let's yeah. say we had, we had this, last year we added 3,000 megawatts of renewables. This year we'll add roughly 5,000 megawatts. So each year this moves because we're putting down right. more renewables. And so your goal is to, I think it's by 2027 to have eliminated at least most of your coal generating capacity. Capacity, yes. Production, probably earlier, because I mean, the capacity yeah. can go offline only when the regulator gives you the green light that you know, they're safe, you know, the, the, the network can withstand the removal of that capacity from, the, from that single location. But in terms of generation, the drop is happening now. So you, we will probably have three, four years in which these plants will just sit on the network but not produce. Right. Which is, which is bad for us, you know, it's a cost. Yeah. But yeah. But we need to give the regulators and the TSOs, the, the network operator, the time to um, make themselves comfortable that this capacity can be withdrawn without risks for the stability of the system. Right. Uh, Francesco, you're a very practical engineer. And one of the things that you've talked about are the supply chains. And this is a subject of very intense interest to us because we do a lot of work on the, how the supply chains are working. And just would be very interested in your perspective on the supply chains that are necessary to support these net zero carbon goals. And just what you're finding in a practical way with the supply chains today. I think it's um, because we deal with globally with, with, with the supply chains. I mean, this is now a very large and, and extremely competitive, but global market. There is a lot of complexity around that. I mean, supply chain, uh, you know, requires somehow an harmonization of uh, cultural concepts. And, and also, if you want alignment on what, what is a word meaning. and I give you a small example. When I say guarantee, we all think we understand what the guarantee means, right? But in certain cultures and certain parts of the world, the word guarantee means something different. So you really have to explain before you enter into a country. Say, I give you, I want these guarantees from you, and I tell you what this is all about, which in other parts of the world is, is given for granted. The same for carbon footprint, because sometimes people don't understand what, it, what you're talking about. So today we are in the middle of this 
education maybe a joint discovery of the carbon footprint of goods and services, which is uh, super complex. I tell you, it's very useful because it will help the whole industry to finally find common grounds in things that before were not even considered useful. I think it will come use at handy because states need are doing the same when they talk about carbon policies, you know, think about carbon border adjustment mechanisms. That is something we don't like, but why people threaten others with that just because they don't understand each other when they talk about carbon. So I think today it's the most important effort to align ourselves on the meaningful words that we have to all to agree upon when you talk about carbon footprint. Think about the carbon offset world and, and all that is behind that. It's a huge, it's a huge mess. So you need really need to work on that. Yeah. What about people? Is there uh, supply chain questions about people in the industry? If you want, there is a growing shortage of people that are necessary for this industry to expand as fast as needed. So I would argue with you that today there is not a limitation in the renewable energy, but in general in the electricity sector, oh. not just the renewable, in the electricity sector, there is not a shortage of money, okay? Money is available. There is not a shortage of opportunities where to invest or plans to be built and stuff like that. But there is the limiting factor is the number of skilled people that you can put at work in a unit of time. That's really the bottleneck of this industry today. This industry needs to grow many folds. Right. It can succeed only if we find the right guys and we put them to work together in the right way. And this is really difficult. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an effort. By the well, way, the problem partly resides on the fact that the people like me that come from the past are not that useful because they really need to change your mind and that's difficult. Right. Well, one big change, of course, is happening is uh, the rapid shift by automakers to electric vehicles. And how does uh, Enel see itself interacting with that and meeting the needs of uh, the electrification of transportation? You know, in all my life, all my, uh, you know, you cannot believe this, all my life I wanted to go to a motor show. I've always said, you know, I want to go to one of these shows, but I never managed to get there. Last, this, two days, when was it? Three days ago, I was invited to a motor show in, in Munich because this is the German motor show, which is one of the best and largest. Of course, unfortunately, this was a virtual session. So I didn't, oh. <laughs> I didn't see anything really. But I, get, I got invited to speak with Herbert Dies, who is the CEO of Volkswagen, on the... Nexus that today exists between our industry and the car manufacturers, which is fundamental because if a car needs to be electrified, then electricity becomes important and not just the electrons, but the ways in which these electrons get into the car and the way in which they interact and, and, and the way in which customers can have the best experience while car charging his car or discharging it when, when it works the other way around. So we have now relationship with um, car manufacturers that we didn't have before. We bought cars from them and, and we sold energy to them, but that, that was it, you know, there's nothing. 
Now it's a technology exchange uh, deep down in the, in the way they design their cars, the way their charging systems evolve because our charging system must follow, not anticipate their changes. So it's a huge hand in hand trip that we have to do together. Uh, clearly we will never manufacture cars. <laughs> This is way too difficult, but that's a massive transition just in itself to reshape transportation. Well, they are undergoing the transition we went through 10 years ago in a faster, in a faster and most, I would say, troublesome way. So I have a lot of understanding for the pains that car manufacturers have to go through because we went through them. We had our write-offs. We had our mistakes. You know, we did all that. And now I see this happening in a most accelerated way in the industry of cars and cars. I mean, road transportation in general, not just cars. Yeah. Buses, trucks, the whole thing. This is changing huge. And, and, and we have to help them do this in the best possible way. So we are, I always say we are the boring part because, you know, charging is boring. Driving is fun. So we, we take care of the boring part and they but take care of the charging is Charging is pretty essential. <laughs> No driving. Yeah, but you know, it's not fun. I mean, no one has yeah. fun putting a plug in. <laughs> so let me just ask you a couple more questions, a couple more themes. Uh, you talked about your new relationship with automobile companies. Another set of relationships is developing, which uh, traditional oil and gas companies are now calling themselves integrated energy companies. Uh, how do you find, um, how do you think about competition and collaboration with these new entrants, uh, these integrated energy companies? I um, I think that we need all the help we can get in this sector, not as companies, but in the sector. I mean, the sector is basically expanding five or six times in the next years. You, this means that the space is literally sucking in any player that wants to get there. Like I said, we treble our renewable energy position, but we're running at the same, I mean, we have today like a 4% or 3% of the world global installed capacity. By trebling our capacity, we will still be at 3 4%. So that means anybody can come in and try and give it a try. And I think they, they, they are much better to have as competitors rather the wild bunch we have today. Today, we have all developers of the world. Anyone just wants to build a project and sell it, they can do that. And then they don't... Sure. They don't really care about returns, dividends, you know, 20 years, three years. They just want to build and sell. But a utility has a different view. And, and I think an oil and gas company has also kind of more discipline, I would say, and, and some kind of value to shareholders that they need to, to, to give dividends to. So I, I would argue that it would be much better for the sector if the expanding space would be filled by rational experience industrial players rather than another bunch of cowboys that we have had so far. I mean, it, right. so from that standpoint, I'm not at all concerned. Actually, I, I hope this would finally happen. I would say we haven't yet met them in the field. So it's mostly what they're doing is buying stuff that exists already, not just developing and building. So they're still kind of probably you know, feeling if the water is warm enough <laughs> to take right. a dip. But, right. But I, I think they, they need to do that and they will do it. So, so. Right. Uh, just two more questions. One is Europe, of course, has very ambitious goals. 
with your wisdom and experience, uh, what advice would you give? I noticed that you made some remarks about uh, uh, carbon border adjustment mechanisms. What's your, what's your advice to the EU and its goals? Uh, the advice uh, is this, you know, when, when the Fit for 55 package, which was just announced, came up, I was kind of surprised that the 55% decarbonization figure was exactly the one number that when Euroelectric, when I was the president of Euroelectric, so we're talking about three or four years ago, we gave the existing, the commission that was there before, the exiting commission saying, you know, you have a 40% deadline. We think you can go to 55. That was four years ago. Now they got it. Now they put 55. I think it's right. They can do 55. It's not a big deal. It would be best for Europe. Europe needs to say free itself from this carbon dependence because it's not functional for the economy of Europe. So the advice we gave them is do it. Understand that it's not just about getting off carbon, it's about changing the infrastructure that is functional to that end, which means huge money on networks without networks being resilient, more interconnected and more digital, this will be difficult. So it's time to understand this kind of neglected space in the energy sector, which is network interconnecting networks and distribution networks with everything will go at the end because this happens when you electrify and in order to electrify, you need to distribute. Right. So last question, um, green bonds sort of have come from nowhere to be a big deal. Uh, Enel has had a lot of experience with green bonds, billions of dollars of green bonds. Just what's been your experience with the development of this financial market and what does it mean to the company? We've been issuing green bonds for several years. And we always were puzzled and didn't like the fact that at least at the, for many years, several years, green bonds traded at a premium to normal bonds. So you wanted the green bond and you issued the green bond, you were paying more to, to people lending you money because the bond was green, which in our opinion was crazy. So we, started talking about the fact that it's not anymore about giving me money to build this thing, this plant, this, in, this initiative. I would like to have a different approach. And the approach was the following. We went to the bond market and said, do you guys agree that if by 2021, this was the first time we did this, we reach a certain percentage of renewable capacity in our mix, the risk profile of our company would be lower. And the answer was yes, it will be lower because you will be less exposed to commodities and you will be less carbon intensive, so less risky. So if that is the case, wouldn't you agree that we should pay less and not more than the market bond rate? And I said, yes, in principle, yes. But what happens if you don't reach that percentage by 2021. This was 2019, by the way, or 2018, I think. And we said, okay, if we don't reach that point, then we will jack up the, the interest rates by a certain number of basis points. And that was it. That, you know, it took me like 15 seconds to explain you this logic. The market said, this was like an incredible innovation in the bond market. 
linking sustainable development targets, commitments that we had taken uh, on SDG 7, this was uh, the renewable energy capacity percentages, to a bond performance. We issued the first bond in the US market, which is not traditionally the best uh, sustainable environment in that sense. Big success. Then we replicated it in the, in the European market. And then we kept working at it. And today we have all our financial um, instruments. So bonds, loans, commercial paper, swaps, anything linked to some sustainable development goal commitment that we formally took and to, to, towards to at which we are working. Um, so we have an incredible number of, you know, we have a big debt. So we have a lot of money in the debt. Uh, we, we have a debt that is close to 50 billion euros, but we are progressively putting all these debts into sustainable development linked instruments. And we are about 30% on the way to succeed. We, we are going to be 100% in the direction as the maturity of the old debt allows us to do that. This debt is less expensive. So it's, it's a good way of you know, showing that becoming sustainable is also economically um, convenient. Right. But, Thank you. And, very and, and, and by the way, I saw that many other companies are doing the same. So this right. was kind of an innovation and people at the beginning saw, well, well that's interesting. And theoretically, any company can do this and provided they commit to some SDG. Right. There are many SDGs, you can pick the ones you like. Right. And we can certainly see that the volume of green bonds is going up very dramatically as people tie them to the goals. Francesco, I want, oh, go ahead. Were you going to say something else? You know, the, the green bond word is, is the point, you know, because green bonds continue to exist. The funny thing is that there was a, back, a pushback from the green bond market saying, ah, the SDG links, uh, linked bonds are going to kill us. And they said, no, no, you, they will survive because, right. because there is demand for green bonds. I mean, I can be, say, uh, a weapon manufacturer and still have a green bond. There's nothing wrong with manufacturing weapons. I'm just saying it's not exactly the most sustainable company you can think of, but still, you know, so, but you can have a green bond. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's very legitimate. They are completely different markets at this point. They're starting to diverge. One is occupying a special niche. The other one is looking holistically at the sustainable profile of the company, not the investment in which the company wants you to focus. That's right. a big difference. Right. Well, Francesco, thank you very much for uh, joining us today for this Week conversation. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground and we're very appreciative. Thank you, Dan. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Eh? Right. Thank I you. really appreciate it. Thank you. We've been talking with Francesco Starece, who is the CEO of Enel, uh, one of the world's uh, super major renewable utilities talking about the energy transition, uh, where it came from, why it's gathering speed, and the role of electrification and the scale of electrification that will be needed in the future. Thank you for joining us for this Sarah Week conversation. Mm -hmm.